Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Thank you very much for listening today. Every other week, I interview chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders to discover their secrets behind the scenes. I want to know what compelled them to become a chef or a bartender. I want to learn everything about their creative process and discover the unknown ingredients that are finding their way in their drinks and dishes. Today is episode number three, and you can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Click on the episode page. Today, my guest is Chef Jonathan Saragossa from Birria Saragossa in Chicago, a restaurant with only one main dish on the menu, goat. Chef Jonathan celebrates connection with people through his engagement in the local community, people he meets during his travel back to Mexico, or through his collaboration with other chefs around the country. He will talk about his creative process rooted in tradition, but based as well on conversation with people. Hi, Chef. Uh, great to have you on Flavors Unknown. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. So how would you describe your job in 10 words? 10 words. Rewarding, fun, at times hectic. I would say hectic's one word. Every job has stress, so a little stressful. Let's see, challenging in a positive way. Inspiring. Let's see, that, what are we at? Six, right? Yeah, correct. Six. I think important is one right now, especially the way things are as far as like the, the Mexican scene in, in, in the States. I think Mexican restaurants are very important right now. It is a respected career, I think, to be a chef. Honorable. Honest is another one that I like to use. It's an honest profession, honest, honest way to make a living. And I'm having trouble coming up with a couple more, but I think right now that's what I have. Cool. So, I mean, the one that you mentioned when you say important, especially with the situation in the States and, you know, the Mexican scene, can you develop a little bit? Yeah, you know, not to get too like political with it, but I think given the political landscape of what kind of we've gone through as far as the presidential change in the past two years and, and kind of the platform Mr. Trump took against the Mexican people and kind of marginalizing us a bit and maybe not choosing his words well enough, giving them the benefit of the doubt and trying to be nice. But yeah, I think Mexican restaurants and Mexican food in general has always been a real cornerstone of the Mexican tradition. And I to- talked about this in my staff meeting maybe two weeks ago about to my staff about how important our job is now in the States more than ever, because there are people in our communities that don't have the luxury of traveling back to Mexico to visit their families because they're, they're, they don't have the paperwork to, to be able to travel back and forth. So they rely on restaurants like us to provide them with a really authentic traditional food to remind them of their, their homeland. I feel really responsible for, for that. And I think we're kind of like the gatekeepers for, a lot of traditions too. So, and uh, and the restaurant is located in a, in an area in Chicago that is Mexican and Polish, correct? Correct. How engaged are you or involved are you with the, the community? I go to my former 
community college, which is on the Southwest side of Chicago to go teach classes and about Mexican food and, and talk to the kids and young adults about, you know, what culinary school means and how to take, cause it's not for everybody. School's not for everybody. I dropped out of culinary school twice. So I understand that, but I think what school provides for these kids and young adults, I think is cornerstones and, and kind of building blocks, stuff to build upon discipline. It kind of allows them to be creative and, but it holds them accountable at the same time. So I, I, I do talks at different grammar schools in, in my old culinary school. And, uh, we do, you know, food drives and events and, and a bunch of stuff around the city and people support us. Our community supports us and we try to give back in return. But, you know, what our community has given us is, is we can't, we, I don't think you can ever repay that. Um, we're so thankful. We're going into our 11th year at the restaurant. So, you know, you talk about people coming out and supporting you, you know, that the proof's in the pudding, you know, 11 years, it's crazy. So your family restaurant in Chicago is called Miriam, yeah, sorry, Saragossa. Yeah. So how would you explain what the restaurant is about and what Birria is? So yeah, uh, Birria Saragossa has been around since, brick and mortar restaurant has been around since 2007. But my dad learned how to make the recipe in around 2002, uh, 2000, end of 2001. He traveled back to Mexico to learn to make this recipe with Miguel Segura in his hometown of La Barca, Jalisco. That's famous for this oven roasted goat dish that we serve at our restaurant. And it's the only dish that we have. So my dad learned when I was about 11. And when he came back and he'd go back and forth. And with the help of my mother, they kind of perfected the recipe. And I was always involved somehow, whether it was like, you know, running to get something at the store, or coming back and helping him out. I was only 12. And that's when my dad started really kind of teaching me because he did need a little help. He didn't need a lot of help. He kind of had it. I think he did it to keep me around and keep me out of trouble. And and yeah, so I learned at a young age how to cook this dish and how to really kind of learn the ins and outs of it. But, you know, like everything in this life, you know, there's days that if you take the dish for granted, you know, it'll let you know that it's still there, <laughs> you know, whether it be the goat burning or something. And, and it keeps you really humble and honest, even though we serve one dish at the restaurant. So yeah, I've been cooking it since 12. So I'm 29. It's been a while cooking it. Pretty amazing. And can you explain what um, like the dish is about? Yeah, absolutely. So the process is pretty simple. We take local goats, we get them fresh twice a week. We butcher them in house. So we kind of break them down into smaller pieces. We season them with sea salt and then they get steam cooked at that point to make them almost tender. And then after they're done steam cooking, we marinate them in a red mole, which is entre chilies and some spices. And then um, at that point, we'll roast them in the oven at a pretty high temperature in lard to get a nice crisp and the mole kind of sticks and becomes like a really nice flavoring for the meat. We'll take it out once it's nice and crispy, but still tender. We'll chop it up and we serve this tomato-based broth over top, which I think sets us apart from other birrerias is the, the style of ours is more dry. It's not a stew. There's a textural contrast. There's spice. There's, you know, good fat in there. And, you know, it's roasted in lard. I know lard in the United States is a four-letter word quite literally, but I feel like, like people use butter, but won't use lard. I'm like, well, you know, what's the difference here? They're both flavor. They're both frowned upon by the medical profession, but they're delicious. I think that kind of sets us apart from other beater DS is the distinct style of roasting and using a, a vegan broth, basically, and using some fermentation to kind of give us that umami and to cut through the richness of the meat. So I think it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's 
it's unique. It's a very unique dish. And, you know, it has to be because we only serve one dish at a restaurant. So it better be good, right? <laughs> and, and as well, some outstanding tortillas. Yeah, handmade tortillas. You nailed it. Our masa, masa specialist, as we call them, our masa angels, they're, <laughs> they're amazing. I don't know. They have magic in their hands, these women. But yeah, I think, like I said, you know, masa in, in Mexico means dough, but, you know, corn is such a essential part of the Mexican diet. And it's such a versatile ingredient if you know how to use it. And the p- process of nixtamal is the, the process of adding the mineral lime to the corn kernels and cooking it in hot water and then milling it and pressing it into a tortilla is pretty amazing. And we do it at our restaurant and it's, it's just a, such an essential part of the Mexican diet and, and our birria dish. Yeah. So I had the pleasure to, uh, to come to your restaurant. So. I remember that you have as well a, a series of uh, at least one sauce, correct? That uh, we can uh, pour and put on the the tortilla and the birria. Yeah, correct. So our menu consists of three things. That's the birria, so the oven roasted goat dish with the tomato consomme. It quesadilla. So it's a you, there's two of them on the menu. It's you can either get the corn tortilla with chihuahua cheese in there, or you can get the two corn tortillas stuffed with chihuahua cheese and the meat. And so there's basically it's using the same ingredients that we have in house. And then the other one is the salsa de mocajete. It's a fire roasted Roma tomato salsa with garlic that's roasted as well and arbol chili to kind of give it a nice punchy kick. And it's made stone ground in a mortar and pestle, a mocajete and the tejolote, which is the little rock that you grind it with. But, um, yeah. And then we have a hot sauce, an arbol chili hot sauce that we serve on the side. But yeah, simple. How do you explain the growing popularity of the goat here in the U.S.? I, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty awesome, man. I think we, we at Zaragoza were at the forefront of a lot of things. You know, We were absolutely at the forefront of being a restaurant that dedicates itself to one thing only. We were a goat-centric restaurant from the, you know, out of the gate. And now you see goat on the menus. And I think goat's kind of, I don't want to say replacing lamb, but it's definitely giving lamb a run for its money. And as somebody that's been a part of a restaurant that kind of started a movement as far as goat goes in the United States, I mean, you know that goat is the most eaten meat in the world. You know, in Mexico, it's, it's pretty common. But in the States, I think, you know, the U.S. invented the, the drive-through and the supermarket and, and the boneless chicken wing. And we, I think as Americans, we're kind of scared of seeing bones, but, you know, 10, 11 years ago, when we started the restaurant, we kind of just said, you know what, we're going to serve one thing and we're going to do it our way. And, you know, fingers crossed that people like it. And, you know, here we are 11 years later, and we're kind of like so thankful for the response from people. And it goes to show you that, like, I wouldn't say it works out all the time, but if you stick to your guns and you do it well and, and you do it for the right reasons and you have good intentions, as corny as it sounds, a lot of things can be, or a lot of things are possible. Why this decision from your dad, I guess, 11 years ago to focus on having only one specific dish on the menu, which is very different from you know most of the restaurants? Absolutely. I think in talking to my father, he wanted to have more time with his family and kind of, it was a decision more of a, uh, of a lifestyle change for him. He was tired of the rat race. He was working in corporate America and he wanted to be his own boss. And I think I think my dad, as straight and narrow as he is, he's very much of a rebel. 
And I think, I think that's what I got from him. We're very rebellious. We're very curious people and, and we're very driven. I think it was more of a kind of like a, a protest to the status quo on his end. I think he wanted something different. And when you get so frustrated with something, you, you kind of do the polar opposite of what you were doing. And he made sure to focus on it. And, you know, because of his decision and my mom's decision and their sacrifices, you know, I get to do what I do every day, which is amazing. You know, that's kind of like the, the epitome of the American dream. Your parents make sacrifices, your grandparents make sacrifices and, you know, it's up to you to make it better. And that's really what all, all I'm doing is I'm trying not to mess up the groundwork laid in front of me by my grandparents, by my parents. So you are coming from a Mexican family. So what, and we're in September. So what uh, Hispanic Heritage Month means to you? Oh man. Again, not to get political with it, but it kind of is a thing where it's becoming, for me, it's been the past couple of years, it's been way more important. We've gotten so, so many accolades at that little restaurant. It's amazing. We've been so lucky. We are kind of like a cornerstone in the Chicago, Mexican, and Latino scene here. You know, we did, uh, we were contacted by Hennessy last year to do an ad for, with Hennessy in collaboration with our restaurant. And the premise of it, of it was to be released around this time and to talk about how we fit into the Latino food scene in Chicago. And they had us go to different restaurants that are Latino owned or Latino themed and talk to these owners and stuff. And, you know, not just Mexican restaurants, we're talking South American, Brazilian, Argentinian, and another Mexican restaurant and a Cuban restaurant. And we're talking to these owners and everyone's story is kind of similar. Like we are doing things that we just kind of always known and we're just bringing it to the United States. And I think Hispanic Heritage Month celebrates that. I think it celebrates our diversity as Latinos, as uh, Latino Americanos, because we are immigrants here. And I think Hispanic Heritage Month is just that and celebrates how different we are, but how similar we are. You know, in traveling, you know, you just came back from Nashville, like you said, you see different things every trip. You know, you see how people live and you're like, man, you know, I kind of do something similar at home. I think that's the biggest thing. And, and I, 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 when I go to the classrooms and talk to these kids and a lot of the inner city kids are focused on material things, I'm like, guys, if you want those things, it's okay to want nice things. It's okay. But you need to work hard for it. You need to do it in an, in an honest way. And the biggest thing and to knock down the prejudice in our future generations is to give them the opportunity to travel and to experience something different than them and get them out of their comfort zone. So I really do tell these kids, I'm like, hey, for, for Christmas, instead of like a toy, ask your parents for a passport and ask them for a trip and have them take you somewhere, even if it's across the border to Canada or Mexico or something, but get out and see something different. And I think with that, that's what my parents did to me. And, and, you know, it's really, really helped me traveling and kind of experiencing other people's cultures. I think that's, uh, it's a, a, a thing that we miss sometimes as Americans. And you just came back from another trip to Mexico. I follow you on uh, Instagram. Yeah. So, so where, where are you this time? And what, uh, what is it so important for uh, you, um, you know, about those trips uh, back to Mexico? You know, I just talked about my parents. I hated it as a kid. For some reason, the, um, I used to play baseball. So at the end of baseball season, which was like late July, about a month before school started, they, in that month, they'd send me to Mexico with my grandparents. Most, most summers, not all summers, but most of them. I hated it because I wanted to be with my friends and, you know, I wanted to be hanging out here and I kind of fought it. I was, again, a rebel. But they would send me out there and now as an adult and I travel out there and 
I see what they were trying to do and I see what they were trying to instill in me. And, you know, it's there, it's there. So when I go to Mexico, I just feel at home, man. I go to, I would just came back from Oaxaca. And I think the biggest thing that I take away from these trips is, is the, the food. Yeah. The technique is fine. I, I pick up on a lot of those things and flavors. I think the connection with the people is the biggest thing for me. You know, the stories of these, of these small town people and the similarities between our, my family and theirs is, is so, it's just so tight knit. And I think, you know, these people dedicate their lives to one thing and it's like, well, Hey, we do that out here too. So I think that for me is the most fulfilling thing is just the connection with the people and, and discovering that we are more alike than we are similar. So that's the biggest takeaway from, from my trips. And one of the previous one you met with uh, Diana Kennedy. So can you talk about her and who uh, she is? Oh man. Yeah. That kind of came out of nowhere. The, the whole, like the whole thing of like asking you shall receive. So we contacted her handler in uh, Los Angeles and, um, you know, just to, we're going to be driving through or pretty close to where she lives. And, you know, maybe she says yes. And we were expecting, you know, not even to get a response for our email. And sure enough, Diana agreed to see our group and thank God uh, one of my friends that kind of set it up and we met with her and I talk a lot, obviously, as your listeners will find out because I'm rambling on. But in that moment, when I met Diana, I was just a fly on the wall, basically. And I was just listening and kind of absorbing all this knowledge. And, you know, she's 96 years old and she still has this energy, this, this uh, vibrant kind of energy. And it really, it's inspiring because I'm only, I'm 29, but man, if I can make it to that age and still be that fiery, I, I would, that'd be, a, that'd be an accomplishment. You know, she's an encyclopedia with Mexican food and she's done the research and she's really paved the way for a lot of young cooks and chefs like myself to kind of take over where she, or you pick up where she left off. And I think a lot of cooking is that, like, I, I know there's a lot of chefs that are very selfish and proprietary with their recipes. But for me, cooking has always been about sharing. That's the way I grew up. That's the way my mom taught me. You share a meal with somebody, you share a moment, you share, it's very intimate. And I think, you know, that's what I learned from Diana and cooking is a lot of sharing and, and inspiring others. And I think that's what I took away from her. But, you know, it's, I see these shows that are competitive and, oh, it's so-and-so versus this person on, you know, a chef show or something. And our, our, our jobs aren't competitive like that. Cooks and chefs are nurturers by, by nature. That's what I've been learning on these trips is, you know, how to share and how to, how to be in the moment. Diana definitely hit on those notes. So beside Diana, who are the chefs that you look up to? I know people usually say like, oh, a chef on TV and stuff. But for me, it's a guy that I worked for, a chef that I worked for. His name's Andrew Zimmerman. He owns Sepia. It's a Michelin starred restaurant here in Chicago. He's also a star chef's winner. I was working for him at the time when he won. And he now opened up a new restaurant called Proxy right next door to Sepia. I'm in the West Loop here in Chicago. And he's honestly one of my biggest inspirations. I knew from the day I met him that I was like, this guy's like, kind of has like, I don't know if you're a Star Wars fan, but he had like a Jedi energy to him. Very, 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 just kind of a calm demeanor and, and very methodical. And I kind of emulated him from a, an early, an early start. And I kind of see what he's done and his legacy and, and the cooks that have worked for him. And it just kind of drives me to, try to be somewhat like him. And I think Andrew is one of my, one of my kitchen heroes and my chef dad, if you will, you know, 
I only worked for him for a brief time at Sepia before I moved on, but he's the type of guy where I can send him a text and, you know, run an idea by him. And he was, he'll always respond, you know, with an honest and open answer. And he's always been able to talk to me and about stuff. And this is a guy that's won Michelin stars and, you know, James Beard nominated and, and uh, Jean Benchet award winning. And this guy is the most humble dude and great, great man. He's a great father to his kids. Honestly, like we talk about cooking, but at the end of the day, it's about being a good human being. I think he exemplifies that pretty well. I've seen as well on, um, you know, Instagram that you are constantly collaborating with other chefs mm -hmm. around the country. Yeah. So what do you mean from these experiences? So like I said, I mentioned earlier that I'm a two-time culinary school dropout. So I really relied on other people as my education and cooking and learning and, you know, <laughs> messing things up along the way and learning, okay, I won't do that again. And, and uh, that's the way I kind of learned is kind of going through the process. So these events are very much that they kind of, they personify that, that kind of like methodology. So I organize these events, whether I, I get contacted for them or I set them up myself and I work with these people and it's just, it's a form of an education for me. You know, everyone has a different way to do something. And, and I always like learning the other ways to do, you know, something that I know how to do maybe, or they have a different view on it or a different technique. And that's, again, we come back to the sharing chefs share different things, you know, there's no harm in sharing. You know, they say, you know, you light a candle just because you light another candle with that one. It doesn't mean it goes out. The flame stays and, and it, you pass it on. So I think, I think that comes back to the whole sharing thing. These collaborations are that we inspire different ideas. We inspire each other to be better and, and we build friendships and community with along the way. So I would like now to talk a little bit about innovation. Can you describe to me your creative process? Yeah, I think it's very, it's de it depends on my mood. I'm a very emotional person. Most days I wake up and the first thing I do is put music on over my speakers. And I think within the first couple minutes of the, of the day when I sit up from waking up, I, I have a, a mood that I'm in. You know, some days will be bossa nova. Some days will be uh, funk. Some days will be psychedelic cumbia from Brazil or something like that or hip hop. It just depends. So it depends on the day of what I'm inspired by. Most of the time, it, it, my creative process is steeped in tradition. So the traveling really helps me out. It could depend on the weather. It could depend on anything. You know, I, I get inspired by having conversations with people, asking them something and they tell me a story of their childhood and stuff. And I'm like, Oh, we should make that. You know, at the restaurant when I make staff meal, I usually kind of pick an employee and ask them, Oh, you know, did your mom ever make this? And yeah, they, she made it this way. And. That's how staff meal usually comes about. You know, it's just somebody telling a story and somebody saying, Oh, I'm craving this with this day. My mom used to make it this way. And that's how we kind of do it. So my creative process is pretty much that is asking people, having a conversation with them and then kind of working on a dish together. So as an example, tell me how, you know, about the time when you turned the family restaurant into a pop-up ramen spot. And <laughs> it seems that it is on the. Popularity and uh, of uh, that moment, you are doing this on a regular basis. We try to do a pop up at the restaurant a month, so we'll try to do twelve a year, and that's really for us. It's very, very. It's ambitious because it's a small restaurant. If you've been there, you know it's a very labor intensive process. So to execute a dinner for like forty people, which is what the pop ups are, it's very hard. And I'm the only one cooking, so in a way, it's really, really cool because it's 
you know, Jonathan made all your food. Like, you know, I made all your food, but at the same time, it's challenging from a business owner standpoint. But yeah, the ramen one was super cool. That was the first one of the year. It was January. And actually, Bon Appetit wrote us up about it, which is not so. Yeah, we did a um, Mexican Japanese kind of like uh, mashup using making Japanese kind of yakitori. We had the yakitori, but we had like an izakaya style menu. And I think, you know, Japanese street food and Mexican street food, there's so many parallels. So we did that. And the main course was the pozole ramen, which had goat in it. It had like a kind of like a skemen, which is like the double boiled broth with pork. It has, it has some uh, chicken in there. We use goat bones in ours. And the technique was Japanese for the broth, but the flavoring was from Mexico. And it was just really cool. My friend Shin Thompson made chili de arbol noodles for a ramen. It was just like a really, really cool event that a lot of people had a hand in because when I announced it, everyone reached out. They're like, oh, can we help? This is such a cool idea. And it just goes to show you like the community in Chicago. Like we all support each other and we all try to make each other better and inspire one another. And I think that's the beauty of these pop-ups is, you know, most of the audience is people in the industry. So chefs, you know, servers come out. It doesn't matter. Different restaurants and they come out. It's BYOB. They have a great time in our little shop. And that room is small. But when you you see these events, it just feels like smaller and it's amazing. It's a great feeling. So what were the other themes that you, uh, you used for the other pop-up? I know we did uh, a, a Spanish pop-up. We did, you know, it's a Mexican restaurant. So no matter what, you're going to have Mexican kind of eat an ingredient or a plan, a dish. You know, we did a, a vegan Indian dinner. My friend Charlie Welsh and I, he's a great chef as well. We did an Indian vegan dinner. We did a vegetarian Mexican Mexican dinner, which is awesome. But, you know, it just, again, it depends on the season, what we want to cook. And then we kind of work back from that, you know, tying into the creative process. Sometimes, you know, the seasons dictate what you cook. Right now, corn's popping up everywhere. So if we did one right now, it'd be a very corn-centric menu. So when is the next one coming up? I think we're going to do one in December. We're going to do like a Mexican Christmas. So it'll be tamales, pasole, you know, mom traditional mom food for like a family gathering during the holidays in Mexico. I think it's going to be the next one that we do. So you're talking about mom food. I read again, again on your Instagram yeah. that um, the influence of women are quite important in the cooking for you. For you. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. I, I think without women, men would be, men would be nowhere. Um, obviously, and especially with cooking, because talked about this with my mother and uh, my grandmother and, you know, why they started cooking. And while the, you know, oh, the old school saying of like, oh, well, the men are off providing, you know, the women stay at home and cook and that's their job. And it's like, yeah, but anyone can go out and work. But the women are the, are the ones that are dealing with the family and raising these kids. And, and they're kind of uh, not to take anything away from the guys that work hard work, but they're the ones that are the flame holders of tradition. They create tradition. The Mexican food scene is, is created by these women, housewives, if you will, way back in the day. And that's all they did is cook. From the beginning of their day, they would go to the mill and mill the corn, come back and make tortillas for breakfast and fry the eggs and make the salsa that they're going to use for lunch as well. They're so crafty and they're so driven to provide for their family, like this experience that's so wholesome and so nurturing. And I was raised by my parents, obviously, but I gravitated towards my mom, my mom's family more. Her mother would take care of me. 
and the first, I think the first five cousins were all women and well, not women, but all girls. And then me. So I was just surrounded by women all the time. So I, you know, (laughs) that's all I really knew. That's what my cooking is. I feel way more comfortable cooking at my restaurant because my restaurant is mostly women above 40. For some reason, that's, that's who wants to work at our restaurant. That's who we hire. And I, that's who I honestly, no offense to anybody, but that's who I trust tasting my food. They don't, they don't, they don't BS with me. I don't know if we could swear on the show, but they don't BS me. They, <laughs> they say I'll have them taste something and be like, mm, it was better yesterday. And maybe you should add this. And they don't, they're not scared of me where, you know, a kid out of culinary school, an American kid out of culinary school would kind of blow sunshine up my butt and be like, yeah, chef, this is great. These women are like, no, it needs salt. It was better yesterday. You need to cook this more down and, and all this stuff. So for me, I f- it's maybe it's a superstition thing, but I feel more comfortable cooking with, with uh, Mexican women in my kitchen. It's kind of funny. I'd like to come back to uh, the topic of the pop-up. What would be the, the most important learning that you can share with uh, others when it comes to putting together a pop-up? I think the most important thing is just be yourself. For the, for these pop-ups and cook the food that, that you believe in. As young cooks and young human beings, we try to do a lot that isn't really us, whether it be a high school kid, you know, dressing a certain way to impress his friends. And it's the same thing with young chefs. You know, as I look at my food when I was 21 and I look at it now being 29, it's pretty different. I think that's the biggest thing I take away from the pop-ups is be yourself. Obviously be organized. And work with people that you believe in and believe in you. But I think, you know, as a young chef, I was trying to do too much. I actually got, we talk about inspiration and creative process, but I was watching a documentary on, on fashion of all things. And they're talking about Yves Saint Laurent. And they came across Coco Chanel and, you know, the big, the big names and stuff in fashion. It, it came to a quote of hers and it was her methodology of how she got dressed before she w- like went to an event. And she's like, when I thought I was ready, I would look in the mirror and I would take one thing off and then I was ready. In the creative process, it starts as super ambitious and then we kind of take a day and then look what needs to be there and what doesn't and we take away the things that don't need to be there and then we work on the things that need to be there and we work hard on them to make them kind of come together and then I think that kind of makes a dish and I think the creative process is that and during these pop-ups, it's to be inspired, it's to create something is to build upon the things that you cook for that pop-up and hopefully you know you can keep working on those dishes later on and, and kind of perfect them if you will but um i think that's the biggest thing for pop-ups be yourself be driven and work with people that want to work with you and you want to work with and you want to be inspired by and be simple and be honest that's one of the keyword that you used at the beginning yeah it's be honest and people can tell if you're faking with food i've been to dinners and i'm like okay cool this is beautiful and it tastes good and it's technically sound, but it's not inspired. And that's when people start cooking with their brains and not from the soul. So I think if you cook with soul and then work backwards and make it look nice, I think it's people respond to that a little bit better. So I'm interested into ingredients and flavors yeah. and something different and unfamiliar. So if there's any things that you can share with us, about unique and unfamiliar ingredients that um, you have been exploring lately? Sure. I think for me, especially traveling to Oaxaca, it's chilies and the way they respond to different cooking techniques. It's like anything, any other ingredient, but chilies are so 
you know, depending on how you treat them initially, they, they can, it builds a base for your sauce or whatever condiment that you're using. Chilies or chiles, as we call them in, in uh, Mexico, are, are kind of the thing I'm obsessed with right now. And, you know, today I made a sauce that super simple. It's caramelized onion. And then we kind of sweat garlic into that caramelized onion. And then instead of adding the, it's a tomato sauce. Instead of adding the tomatoes there, I take the arbol chili that's been toasted and made into a powder. And I bloom it with the caramelized onion in the, in the fat with the garlic. And when you put the tomatoes in there and you taste it, it tastes super floral and spicy and deep and, and delicious and rich. But we're talking about a sauce that has four ingredients. And then you can cook anything in that sauce. You know, you can, you can put some shrimp in there if you'd like, or, you know, throw a little bit of chopped olives in there and some fried capers and get like a, a Veracruz style sauce from the eastern coast of, of uh, Mexico. But it's just a different technique to kind of bloom your chilies or toast them on the comal. And, and some molies, they take the seeds out of them and they, they blacken the seeds and rinse them and puree them with the toasted chilies. And just, man, there's so many different things you can do with the chilies. And it's, I'm kind of exploring that right now. American consumers di discovered, you know, the jalapeno and then the dry version with the chipotle. Mm -hmm. And then after that, it was hero. And then lately we uh, have, um, you know, ancho mm -hmm. uh, chile. So What do you think would be uh, the next one being like the, the popular next? Chili? The habanero is awesome. It's my, it's my best friend Charlie's favorite chili, one of his favorites. Like we go to this Marisco's place, which is a Mexican seafood place, and they put a little like uh, chopped red onion mixed in with some sliced thin habanero and just cover it with lime juice and oregano. And the, the guy like eats so much of it and he's sweating and he's feeling good and all this stuff. But I think habanero chilies are so fun, man. And they have such a nice fruity flavor to them. They kind of have like a pineapple tropical feel to them. All chilies are very versatile. And I think it's what you like. Do you want smoky? You know, we talked about chipotle. Do you like sweet or do you like them both? You know, you can do a pasilla chili, which is both spicy and smoky and, and has a really nice flavor to it. But again, it's what you like. I think the next biggest chili in Mexico, it's a kind of a sleeper, but it's the bikin. It's this tiny chili. It's about the size of like your pinky nail, but holy cow, it'll, punt, it'll knock you out. It's so delicious too. So let's focus on uh, one common ingredients. Um, you know, like we were talking about the shrimps and the prawns. Mm -hmm. So what would be your suggestion for a home cook, how to prepare them, but with a unique and a, a different twist? If you're working with prawns, there's a cool technique that I like to do and it's putting some like, heating up a cast iron skillet, medium high heat and getting it kind of almost to a smoke. And then you put like a, a rock salt or like a sea salt or, you know, on top of it. And then you put your prawns on top of it and let them cook for like a minute, like with no oil. And then you drizzle some olive oil over them and it smokes and it's so tasty. And it's, it's like searing a piece of meat basically, but you put so hot skillet, a little bit of salt, your prawns on there, let them cook for a little bit and then you hit it with olive oil and it'll smoke and it'll start cooking and it'll give some fat and then you flip them and then you can either finish with a sauce or take them out or whatever you want to do. But I think that like that smoking and the salt is such a cool technique. It is, I've seen it done in Veracruz before. Veracruz is super, super influenced by the Spanish. It was the first place they landed in Mexico. So it could be a Spanish technique if I'm not <laughs> mistaken, but yeah, it's really cool the way they treat seafood in Veracruz. So how would you source and select the ingredients when you are not a chef and then you want to have access to quality and fresh ingredients? 
having access to quality ingredients starts with shopping at a good grocery store. We have a wonderful store called Local Foods here in Chicago. It's off of Elston. There's a butcher there named Rob Levitt, who's also a great friend, but they source their their meat from the prior farms. It's a great farmer. Their vegetables are locally grown as well. If you go and support local markets and you get to know these producers and farmers and have conversations with them and int- introduce yourself to them and support every week, show up at your same time and, hey, good to see you, so-and-so. Like, you know, what do you got today? And they'll tell you what they, and how to cook it and all this stuff. And again, we come back to that, that creative process and its connection with people. And I think that's what home cooks need to do is get out, support your local farmers, local market, local butcher, and build these relationships and, and change the food culture that we currently have. So now it's the time for the rapid fire questions. Oh man, cool. So where do you eat when you are not cooking in your restaurant? I have a go-to restaurant. It's called Lula Cafe. It's in Logan Square. Jason Hamill's the chef. It's an awesome restaurant. And they treat you super nice. And it's a really very nice place to be. So Lula Cafe. Give me three dishes you could not live without cooking or eating. Okay, eating is going to be my mom's pozole. It's going to be my grandmother's pork ribs and salsa verde. And cooking, I can't live without my birria. So because that pays the bills. If you weren't a chef, what would you be? I would be an interior designer. I think there's a lot of parallels between both careers. You know, you spend all this time developing your taste and your personal taste and, and learning from different furniture producers and stuff. And then, you know, but you still have to respect what the client wants. And I think I have an eye for design. You know, I designed my whole apartment. So I, I would definitely, I don't know why, I just have a knack for that stuff. Are you pork or beef? Man, again, it depends on the day, but I think I lean more towards pork. And are you tequila or mezcal? Mezcal. And I'm, I'm going to get, I'm going to catch a lot of crap because I'm from Jalisco. But uh, mezcal is so diverse and so delicious. And I think it's a little bit more interesting. So my Jalisco people, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so I would like to thank you very much, Chef, for being part, you know, the podcast and joining us at uh, Flavors Unknown. Man, this is super fun. You're so good at it. You're a great interviewer, man. So happy to be a part of it. Thank you for listening today. And if you have any comments, you are always more than welcome to. Just head to flavorsunknown.com and click on the contact page. I see you in two weeks. And until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. Thanks for listening to Flavors Unknown. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave a review. Find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. And if you want to join the Flavors Unknown community, search Flavors Unknown on Instagram and Twitter.